Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today my guest is Melanie Wood. Melanie is an award-winning documentary filmmaker from Vancouver, British Columbia. Her work has been shown at the Montreal World Film Festival and the Calgary International Film Festival. It's also been shown on the CBC and BBC International. Her work is often about the unrepresented, the voices we don't often hear from. And this latest documentary is another example of that. Living in Hope takes us inside the Hope Center in North Vancouver, a really cool space, uh, giving us an inside look at what it's like to be in a psychiatric facility. She spent over a year filming there, and it's interesting to hear how her perspective changed during that time. Just maybe it'll change yours too. Here's her story. Well, let's start briefly with who you are as a storyteller. If you were to look back at your life and say, this is when it started, what were the earliest signs that you would become a professional storyteller? Ooh, the earliest signs, that's a good question. You know, when I was younger in university, I guess I'd always imagined I'd be doing kind of the hard-hitting current affairs, in-depth investigation stories. I, I found out very quickly that that... It wasn't really my thing because you have to be a little bit hard-edged and mean, and I'm just mm. not. <laughs> so so um, I guess the first work that I've done in, in documentary was really telling story. I like to tell stories of people who don't normally have a voice. I guess that's that's the thing I enjoy is going to just ordinary people who I think have an interesting perspective on something that we're not talking about. Yeah letting them tell us about that and then we can we can mull it over talk to our friends about it talk over the table about it that's the kind of stories I like to do so you knew going into Simon Fraser that that journalism and and eventually documentary filmmaking maybe you didn't know documentary filmmaking yet (laughs) but by the time you went to Simon Fraser you were thinking I want to be telling stories yeah, I'd say so. You know, I was kind of uh, wandering around wondering what to do after high school. And it was actually my father who suggested I'd be interested in in communication studies up at Simon Fraser because they had a unique program where it mixed really looking at social, you know, social communities and communication and what that means to be human in, in cities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess I did kind of know back then without knowing that I knew. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Then you took your early years uh, in the business, were at the CBC, a, a formative place uh, for you to learn more uh, about the ropes of, of what I suppose you like to do and, and get practice in doing it. What did you learn there? You know, what I learned there was a lot of really good discipline. The old days at CBC, I came at it from from just out of nowhere. I got a job in what was called traffic department, which is scheduling commercial time on on a computer so really that's my first job and I guess that's been part of it is learning I think people today sometimes expect to land their first prime job right away Mm. and for me I was just happy to get in but then I you know very quickly moved into doing some work in news and current affairs and eventually learning how to tell small stories on a show called Pacific Report which was a then very popular current affairs show in in British Columbia. So I learned a lot of discipline. I learned how to get to the nub of a story pretty quickly, but also 
just how to how to figure out what I wanted to do, what I wanted to focus on in the story, because every story can go a million different directions. Yeah. And I guess that's part of the training that CBC gave me was, okay, Melanie, you're setting out to talk to these people. What is it that you want to help them say? So getting in any door that's open was more important than getting the, you know, prime job right away. It, yeah, it would never have occurred to me to land what I, I mean, I wouldn't have even known what I wanted to do at that yeah. point, but I, I knew I didn't want to be scheduling ads for the rest of my life. That's for sure. But it would never have occurred to me to think I could land a job. I was just happy to get in. I yeah. mean, it's the thing. So you mentioned already part of what drives you to telling stories is finding ones that haven't been told before, the people who don't get heard often. I think that's a good introduction to your newest project, the documentary series Living in Hope. How would you describe this series uh, to somebody who hasn't tuned in yet? Oh, man, it's, you know, it's like coming to spend time in a psychiatric facility without actually being there yourself. Mm -hmm. That's how I would describe it. So you hopefully and I've heard back from people, you really do get to meet people and and get a glimpse of who they really are behind the illness. I mean, the illness isn't the person, the person's the person. And if you spend enough time and ask the right questions, you get to figure out who they are, or who they want to be or what their struggles are, just like any of the rest of us. So living in hope is really just spending enough time as a viewer in that place where you get to know the people and get to try and understand the nuances of what we're all dealing with in our society around mental illness. So give some context first as well. Uh, the Hope Center is a place in North Vancouver. Uh, what is its function and, and kind of who are the people that it serves there? Yeah, Hope Center is a, it's a new facility. So Lionsgate Hospital is the hospital on the North Shore in North Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And the psychiatric ward used to be the old building, dark back rooms of that uh, hospital and still is the unused space in most hospitals today. It's changing, but often the psych ward is kind of the last thought. So this Hope Center was a purpose-built building built just for psychiatric care. So the hope was that it would be kind of an all-encompassing place. So you'd be there for acute care, but also get connected to the community support people who also operate out of the same building. So it kind of pulled all the different areas of mental health treatment into one building Mm -hmm. and then the hope is to make it more accessible so if you're you know it's hard enough for any of us to access the health care we need Mm -hmm. but if you have to go hunting for it and you're not mentally feeling on top of your game it can be almost impossible so in this way it helps to remove that barrier that's the hope and you know what's really interesting is when they move the patients from that old dark building into this new building they found that interventions needed for acute care patients went down 60%. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it just said so much. I mean, first of all, you could see light, which is great. And you had a room mostly to yourself. and And it said, you know, I count. You care about me. You care about me getting better. You've given me a place to do that in, as opposed to you don't want to see me. Right. And I get the, the dregs of the building. So, it, yeah, that much difference it made. Yeah, to put somebody in a in a new space instead of a forgotten corner somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You, you spent close to a year at this facility. Maybe first talk about what sparked the need to tell this story. Well, yeah, it was over a year at the facility, actually. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and the, um, 
the idea came through a person I work with at Knowledge Network, Murray Battle. They'd just done a series on emergency uh, room at Vancouver General Hospital, Mm -hmm. and they wanted something about mental health. So he kind of talked to me and said, you know, this is what we're interested in. Would you be interested in figuring out if you can do it? And that just, I loved the idea. Love the idea of doing mm-hmm. that. So I set out and looked at a few different facilities and landed very quickly at Hope Center because I was interested in the kind of issues that affect that could affect any of us. There are places here in Vancouver where the uh, psychiatric facilities mostly deal with downtown east side, um, you know, mental health and addictions people, mm-hmm. which definitely need a lot of treatment. But it's easy for us as viewers to say, oh, well, that's them. It, it's the us and them thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to be us and them. I wanted this to be, okay, this could be my sister, yeah. my daughter, my mother. And so Hope Center really was the place that I thought I could do that. And I was excited to go in and, and try and figure out how I would even tell those stories. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was lucky enough to encounter a couple of really great psychiatrists right at the beginning who, in fact, helped me get in the door, which was great, but also just really um, piqued my interest about what does good psychiatric care look like? What do we have to shift in our thinking in order to help people who need help instead of just judging them? So that was an interesting perspective to start from. So you arrive at the Hope Center on day one, and this is probably oversimplifying, but you're trying to figure in your head, okay, what what story am I going to tell here? And I imagine in documentary filmmaking and, and probably in anything, there's this idea of what you think will happen, the story you think you've, you've got to tell and you're there to tell, and then the story that actually emerges from that. Uh, how, how did that play out in, in your time at the Hope Center? Well, you've kind of hit hit the nub of it for me. I'm a, I'm an organized director. I have a plan when I go out. I have, you know, people I think I want to interview, yeah. and a, a shooting plan for the day. Even I just feel that that's that's part of my old CBC training, right? Sure. It's, yeah. You need to have, be organized, but then also be prepared for everything to be different. And that's exactly what happened. We arrived first day. I had a list of things we were going to shoot, and not a single one of them happened. Not- <laughs> And I kind of got, ooh, you know, it's it's a terrible feeling. But I luckily, my crew was excellent. And, and they said, well, but what we're getting is really good. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, just relax and, and see what happens in front of you. So it, it never really stopped me from making a plan for each day. Yeah. But I did get better and better at letting the plan go when it needed to be let go. But that very first day we arrived and the patients were undecorating the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. I think it was January 4th. I'm reminded by one of the, the patients, Richard, that that was the first day I was there, January 4th. Mm-hmm. And they just burst into singing Hey Jude around the tree. And, I, you know, the crew and I just started weeping. It just seemed like such a touching little scene. And that was not at all in my plan. So yeah. that really gave me, me some hope that, you know, if I could just catch a scene or two like that each day that really took me by surprise that would be where I'd want to go. That's got to be a new approach for you too, to be able to let go of the plan and uh, embrace <laughs> whatever whatever comes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a big learning one for me. It still is. Letting go is something apparently I have trouble with. Yeah. But it was, you know, that was the other thing I learned is that I couldn't come in with an agenda. Yeah. I couldn't come in with even any baggage of my own because people are very perceptive. And if you're catching them in those moments when they're very raw and and real, 
if if I came in with with all this other stuff going on in my head, I wouldn't make any progress in terms of getting to know them at all or filming. So really, it was a lesson for me in in being in the moment. As as silly as that sounds, it's yeah. really true. The crew and I would go in and we were just there and we were looking around and talking to people and just being there without thinking about the next grocery shopping or what our date was for the night or anything like that. So, yeah, it was a lesson for all of us in in, uh, how to just be. It was great, actually. To be able to, I suppose, model that you're listening to the people whose stories that you're there to tell as opposed to just uh, putting a camera at them and and not really actively following along. Exactly. We were really, truly interested in what they were saying. I mean, people we met were fascinating. It wasn't hard. It wasn't an act to really want to know more about them. Mm-hmm. If we, if that's our purpose going in, I mean, often on the street, we don't care. We don't want to know more about the person we think is being a little weird on the sidewalk. But if you, you know, if you do care, people open up, they want to tell you their story. And mm-hmm. I truly wanted to listen. And that's how you get close to people is by just, yeah. A facility like the Hope Center is a place where uh, generally people don't get access to, it's, it's kind of like this place that we don't, we don't know a lot about as a general public, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, we, we don't get the chance to go into these types of places and, and see what's going on. And, it's, and along with that comes uh, misconceptions about what people might be like within those doors, uh, what the place is going to be like. What were your misconceptions, if you can recognize them, going into this project? And, and how did they change over the course of time? Yeah, it, that's it's that's really interesting for me to think about because I guess now I I forget what some of my misconceptions were. I think mm-hmm. some of them were I just didn't expect people to be so real, so interested in what we were doing, and and also some of the levity and humor I didn't expect. I don't know why. It, it of course makes sense. People are just being themselves. But I guess I went in thinking it would be a really dark, dour, people would be cranky and in bad moods or whatever, however we want to term that. And Mm -hmm. it just wasn't like that. I mean, obviously there are people like that, but you know what? There's people like that in Safeway too, you know? There's people like that everywhere. So I guess that's the first thing I had to let go is my assumption that people would be unhappy and in what I would have called a bad mood. Mm -hmm. And also, hmm, I don't know, I guess I just had this misconception that nobody that it would be really difficult for people to tell the stories I mean some days I was thinking what am I doing why am I going in here trying to get people who are ill to talk to me and yet it always worked out there are people who want to share stories that haven't had a chance and in fact some days when the crew and I went in in the locked facility on the fourth floor of Hope Center we were the most exciting thing that happened a lot of days. <laughs> so of course, we gathered attention, you know? Right. It was kind of fun. We'd come in and they go, oh, the crew's here. It's way more fun than sitting playing cards with the same person you've seen for the last week and a half. Mm-hmm. What we're often treated to, I think, when seeing mental health stories reflected in the media or in our own lives, they're the stories of, I used to deal with this or I used to feel this way. It's often, I think, in the past tense. Yes. This, though, is a very different story. I mean, you're showing people right in the thick of as whatever they're dealing with is is still happening. Uh, yeah. How come this way of telling stories or how intentional was that and why? Oh, very intentional. You know what? I think I'm showing a little of my own bias here, but I think a lot of the uh, mental health campaigns out there, are they're really good. They've shifted us a lot, but 
to always show people after they're better, to me, is not telling the truth or the whole mm -hmm. truth. Anyway. We, um, and what I found very early was that people still carry a lot of shame and stigma around being ill. And I think one of the reasons that happens is because they look at the people, you know, yes, the public wants to hear from someone who's got a mental illness, but they want to hear from them when they've just got a, a medal at the Olympics or they've just, yeah. you know, done this fabulous music performance or whatever. And those people are amazing. Don't get me wrong. They're, they've done a huge achievement in their life, but then all the rest of the people are still struggling to get out of bed, to get, you know, to just find a job or to find the right house. And to hold someone who's, a, you know, who's already made it up to them makes them feel less sometimes. And also, you know, the other part of it I'm realizing is that the, the, the people who've achieved something don't make us feel uncomfortable. We go, wow, aren't they great? We love mm -hmm. heroes. But it's the discomfort, the, the feeling of being uncomfortable around people who are still struggling that I think helps us shift. I think we can make the biggest change when we're ourselves in a state of discomfort mm. or are a little out of our frame of reference. If we're exactly where we always are, we don't change. But if something can shift us just slightly off edge, then we can develop a new framework and see things in a different way. And I think that's really important. And I think... I'm just rambling now, but I think the other important thing is that people need to be heard when they're sick. That's how we can make the most change in our mental health treatment. If we all try and protect everyone and say, you're not, you're not fit to be seen by us until you're better, what does that say to that person? And yeah. how does that help us figure out new ways to help them? It just doesn't. So. Sure. So as inspiring as the story of somebody who has overcome what they're dealing with and is now thriving, that might not be that might not be relatable to somebody who's still in the trenches, so to speak, or it might be more difficult for them to relate to. At least that's one element of it. Yeah, that's one element of it for sure. I think it's easier for us to relate to that. Yeah. But yeah. not for the people who are really ill and still struggling. Yeah. Uh, is that a? Is, do you think that's a function of of being a, a documentary filmmaker? Is is making people a bit uncomfortable? Is that is that is that a must or is that a sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's from my point of view. I think that's a very good thing to make people feel slightly uncomfortable, hmm. um, and not in a bad way, but in a way of shaking them up a bit. If we if we don't get shaken up, we don't change. Right. And, we become and stagnant. Think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, if I can just in any way shake up a conversation or shake up slightly a way of thinking, that's a good thing. And I think that's true in any of the films I've made. I want to just get people talking in a way that they haven't talked before. Yeah. You're showing people at their most vulnerable or, or could be at their most vulnerable in, in this series. And there's a tremendous amount of trust, I think, that you need to earn to, to document these people when they're at these places. Mm -hmm. What are you mindful of when doing this work in in um, building and keeping that trust? Uh, you know, in all the films I've made like this, people who've opened their hearts and their lives up to me, it, it is a huge trust. I hold it very carefully. And often they tell me way more than is probably good for them. Mm. So one of the things that I'm very conscious of is how much of this that you've shared with me do I need to tell the story and and how much can I just leave aside so that 
in the future, it doesn't come back to haunt you. I guess that's what mm. I'm always thinking of is, you know, it's good to have people tell their story and to shake us up, but I don't want us to put into the story things they've told me that could hurt them in the future. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm weighing in every moment and in every edit when we're in the edit room too. Yeah. The one other thing uh, about telling these sorts of stories, you know, it's somewhat safer or easier to talk about depression or anxiety, but it's much harder to talk about things like psychosis, bipolar disorder, uh, schizophrenia. Uh, what, what were the challenges that you saw in coming in to tell these sorts of stories and I, I guess, again, make people uncomfortable? <laughs> exactly. Well, the first thing is about our, our perfect person to illustrate the schizophrenia part is Ross, um, yeah. Bernie, who will look at the series. When we first met him, he was, and I'm using this term in very lay terms, he was the kind of person who would be ranting on the streets and you'd be afraid of. I mean, he was not making any sense and kind of flailing his arms around. And, and I didn't even know if we should be talking to him or not. And it was actually one of his case managers that said, oh, yeah, he's a really nice guy. He's just in a bit of trouble right now. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, so that shook me up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then I went over and tried to talk to him and, and, of course, found out that he has trouble at the moment speaking the words. Real words come out, but in, they make no sense in terms of their order. Mm-hmm. And gradually got to watch him get better. And for me... And he was perfectly happy to tell his story. I mean, there were times when he said, you know, are, am I going to be on television? You know, what part? Whatever. We just kept going along carefully, step by step. And I think seeing that transition with him is is remarkable. You get to see that the person that you've assumed is a raving lunatic is really not. He's Ross, and he can think, and he's smart, and he has a life, and he just happens to be in the throes of his of a very bad spell when we meet him. Yeah. That's valuable for us to see. The, the bi- people who are, um, are labeled with bipolar, they're, they're fun to be around, I have to say, when they're in their up cycle. And that's what they like about themselves too. So we interviewed a lot of people who live with bipolar disorder because in their up cycle, they are happy to tell their story and a lot of them dropped out which I knew would happen. So just even keeping a couple of people who could tell us what was going on through that whole cycle, I think is very valuable to be able to stay with us even when they're back in their low parts. Yeah. I think is, is, is amazing for sure. I think Ross, I mean, Ross is a great example of that, but it, whether it's Blair or Richard, uh, of being able to tell these stories. I mean, granted, I, I watched the first episode yesterday and yes. uh, and so I haven't seen more yet. I mean, I know more are being released as they come. I know the second one is out. But in in that episode already, in getting a, a fuller picture of whatever ideas you come in to watching this program with, you leave with uh, a fuller sense, I think, of a person compared to simply a diagnosis. And that's maybe one of the better functions of, of what you've done here. Well, exactly. And if you just met Ross in the after part of the before and after story, you wouldn't see what an amazing champion he is of his own life. Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't even know what he has to go through to get out of bed every morning if all you saw was the Ross who gets better, who is better, right? Yeah. So I think it's really important for us to be there through those steps to really see these are extraordinary people. I mean, they have so much more strength than I can even imagine to be able to get up every day and make something, try and make something better of themselves each day to me is just phenomenal. 
What was the most challenging part of telling these stories and, and putting this documentary project together? Oh, a couple of challenging parts. <laughs> uh, it, it very quickly, one of the challenges, of course, was making sure that the people I'd been uh, filming wanted to be in it still over mm. time. I mean, that was part of it was part of my legal mandate, but also part of my own moral mandate to make sure that those I was filming actually wanted to be filmed in the end, like not just each day, but sure. when they saw their piece at the end, they were still comfortable. So that's fine. That was one of the the ongoing challenges. I think the biggest challenge was actually facing the stigma around this head on myself. Some of the staff didn't think we should be showing people in the throes of their illness mm -hmm. for that very reason we talk about that. Why, why would you want to show someone when they're that ill? Let's just wait. We know they're going to get better. Interview them when they're better. Right. And didn't understand that it was okay to actually see them when they're ill. That was a big challenge. So there was a lot, I mean, the staff were amazing, care providers, doctors, the nurses, the ones that wanted to be with us in the filming process were amazing, for sure. And all the care I thought was, was good, I mean, from what I know. But there were lots of people at Hope Center who did not think we should be doing this. And that was always a challenge. If you can imagine coming in every day and and then knowing, uh-oh, that, that person's on shift yeah. and they want to see us with a camera. Yeah. So, you know, we tried to make ourselves scarce or, you know, just, yeah. just not be very present that day. But that was always a big challenge. Yeah. Well, I suppose that, that speaks to a very natural and human instinct to want to put your best foot forward and, and to never show yourself when you are uh, struggling or, or, you know, not at your most polished and presentable. Yeah, and I think the the care providers, it, it's, it, they come at it from a very good place. They're trying to protect their patients and their clients. Yeah. Um, but I believe now in doing that, that that still stigmatizes them. It does say to them, you are not fit to be seen or heard until you're better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. <laughs> I don't have any of that training. So you can take what I say with a grain of salt. But I could really see the difference in people who were propped up by their team and, and said, yes, go ahead, go forward, be part of the film. This is great. And the people who were kind of held back. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm sure there are people who will think I did the wrong thing no matter what. And there are other people who think I've made a kind of film that really changes people's minds. And that's what I set out to do. So, hmm. what, what was among the more poignant moments for you or the more remarkable moments in your over a year that you spent at the Hope Center? Oh, some really, well, one of the, the ones that has stuck with me for a very long time is, again, it's Ross. And when he tried, he, he's making, um, trying to get to get some government number to help him figure out what his disability payments will be. And I don't know, anyone out there who's tried to get to a government department knows that it can be hell, frankly, mm. no matter who you are. And here's poor Ross, who can hardly talk at this point, trying to get to it. So I, I come and ask him why he's frustrated. And he tells me in his own way, he is so frustrated because he, he can't get past this face, he says, and he holds his hands up to his own face. And what he's trying to say is he knows what's, he has a smart brain inside his head. Mm -hmm. And what's really frustrating for him is that he can't get it out to the rest of the world. And to me, that somehow just cut me, 
I felt it right in my heart. Uh, this person is in there. Yeah. And can't express what he wants to express to the rest of us. To me, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And uh, another moment, I guess, was was hearing a woman named Mariette, who's very, very, very depressed, tell us that she, she hasn't even told any of her friends about it because she feels ashamed. So here she is. She can't get over her depression. And she also can't reach out to friends. And that cut home. It came close to home for me because I have some family members that I know when they're depressed, they don't reach out. Mm-hmm. And, and it's even hard to reach in. I mean, they, they kind of go into a shell. So I really felt that as well. We've touched on a lot of this already, but what did you learn from all of this? Uh, whether it was from Ross or from somebody else at the Hope Center, the things that have changed your mind and, and have given you a new look on things going forward? You know, I guess it really has shifted, truly shifted my way of thinking about people who are living with mental illness or struggling to get to get to live the best life they can, it is that they are still people. And I used to see them, I think I did used to see them as their disease first. And now I don't, I actually try and figure out who the person is behind the symptoms that I'm seeing, because it's really the symptoms that are masking who they are. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I think that has shifted for me. I know that when I walk as I visit some of the people I've been filming with have now moved to a downtown east side in Vancouver, which is, you know, where a lot of people move to with with uh, mental health and addictions problems. And I walk down there to go and visit them. And I see lots of people that I normally would not have even made eye contact with. Mm -hmm. And not because I'm afraid, but just because I I don't I don't know, I guess I don't know why I never did before. (laughs) But now I actually try and look and say hi and, you know, stop and talk if they want to stop and talk because everyone is just people. That's, that's Mm -hmm. what's changed in me and it shifted is that it really is important to me that we include people who are different in community, in our community, not just shut them away, because otherwise we're less of a community. We're only as strong as the as the you know weakest part in our community. And so if we can help everyone, we're actually helping ourselves. I really do believe that. Maybe this is the same answer as the one before, but if, if somebody is new to this, what do you hope that somebody gets out of watching what you've put together? Maybe maybe that's difficult for a storyteller to control what somebody is <laughs> what meaning somebody's well, gonna make out of the project. Yeah, I don't know what anyone's gonna make out of the project. I never do. But in this case I really hope that they at least get to see some of who I loosely call my people. They're not my people, they're their own people. But you know what I mean? I really I care about the people that I filmed with. Uh, staff and the patients and I really hope that people come to the films and and get a little bit better understanding and get to see the parts that I loved about everyone too I mean some of the nursing staff and the doctors are amazing people and the patients are amazing people and the whole process of trying to help people live well is very complex and I just want people to see that that everyone is struggling to do the best they can that's what it is That's it for the show. Thanks for listening and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Living in Hope, it's out now. You can check it out for free on the Knowledge Network. Just head to knowledge.ca. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and even better, tell someone else you think might enjoy the show. 
If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. This episode of Story Untold is produced by Emma Terrell. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. <laughs>